Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Bonnie, Helene, welcome to the War Room. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay, so let's get right into it. The new book, The American Way, a true story of Nazi escape, superhuman, sorry, superhuman, <laughs> Superman <laughs> and Marilyn Monroe. Okay, those are... Those are three provocative things on their own, yet you've combined them into one title. What's the backstory here? It, it, it wasn't our choice, actually. Those are the elements of the actual story, and they just happened. And, you know, we had to make it work, but we didn't go, oh, we want to write a book about Marilyn. There she was, part of the story, Superman 2, and my grandfather as well. Helene, do you yeah, want what to? Happened, what happened was... um. Bonnie had found some footage that her grandfather had shot back in 1954 of Marilyn Monroe standing on the subway grate on the Upper East Side of Manhattan for some um, for the seven year itch. I was going to say some like it hot wrong movie. Um, And so, you know, she had found this footage of Marilyn Monroe, which was amazing. It was like really close up. You know, he's a few steps away from her color footage, never before seen. She found it and um, she wanted someone to write a story about it. And I write for the New York Times and through a mutual friend, she got in touch with me. So Bonnie and I met for lunch and she she showed me this footage, just like downloaded on her phone. And it was amazing footage. But the best part of the story, and she kind of knew this coming into it, the best part of the story was about her grandfather, not so much about Marilyn Monroe. Her grandfather had escaped Nazi Germany in 1938. And I just, that was really the story I wanted to tell. But Marilyn was the thing that got everybody interested she was the lore yeah exactly (laughs) and a good lore she is anyway and so you know when she told me that story about the grandfather like oh my god this is an incredible story you know so I wrote the story for the times it was this viral hit you know went all over the planet and back again uh got optioned for a movie that still hasn't been made but that's another story for another day and um in the meantime we became friends and then bonnie found we had she had mentioned this to me when we first met but she had had no evidence of this and knew nothing about it but she mentioned that her grandfather's financial sponsor to come over to america was the publisher of superman and you know I didn't know anything about comics, neither did she. And, you know, we just kind of let that one fall to the wayside. We're like, well, let's just deal with, you know, the Nazis and Marilyn Monroe for the story, for the for the time story. But then we had some time, you know, and it was sort of like she started to dig up this story about Superman. And then she's like, hey, let's write a book. <laughs> Years went by between the article and the book. Yeah. For us to just think about it. And so it occurred to me that this there was this third piece of the story that we just didn't know that much about. Once we discovered that the book was, you know, it had to happen because we had these three amazing characters. And I mean, the Holocaust, Superman and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. And I, you know, my big worry coming into it was that I would never be able to tie those three things together. Like you say, they're so disparate, you know, these three different things. Um, How do you tie that all together into a story? But I did. <laughs> it took a lot of research and it took a lot of digging on both our parts. And um, I think we tie it together pretty well. I have a Superman in here somewhere. I, 
I don't see him right now, but there is a, there is or was. Oh, there he is over there. There's a book in somewhere. So your background is blurred. We, yeah, we well, really- you couldn't let's see here. I can I've got too many dang books in my office to really see, but there he is, oh, there right is, up there. there is. So there he is. Um one of the things that caught my attention is there's been a resurgence in Marilyn Monroe type filmmaking books. And so was this was this kind of luck of the draw, if you will, that this story kind of, your your book kind of came out along this, or was this like, hey, no, there there's is a good time to kind of hit this Marilyn Monroe topic because a lot of people are talking about it right now. It was a good time because we have a different narrative to tell. Um, The series that was on TV was fictional. And we see Marilyn as a heroine, as a feminist. She took care of herself. She was pro. She wasn't embarrassed about anything she did ever, despite the rest of the company thinking maybe she shouldn't have made those decisions. She was proud of her sexuality and wanted to share it, believed sex was not just for procreation and like to talk about it. And America really had a hard time with that. We saw her as someone who took care of and crafted her own, her whole career. Like for example, when a studio wanted her to be in a movie called The Girl in Pink Tights, she was tired of playing dumb blondes. So she said no and started her own production company. Just now, a lot of actresses have started their own production companies to have control over their roles. Marilyn did it in the 50s. Yeah, it's pretty mind blowing. Don't know that about her, that you know how powerful she really was and how in control of her own career she was. Yeah, we didn't even know that. You know, we started digging into her, and I, I didn't. I grew up. You know, I'm in my fifties, and to me, and I think to a lot of my generation, Marilyn was kind of an embarrassment. She was this blonde bombshell, you know, bubblehead person. But then when you start reading about her and reading her writing, even. Um, you see that she was totally on the ball and way ahead of her time, you know, like half century ahead of her time, if, more, if not more. Um, so that became, she became a bigger part of the book because of that, I think, you know, because it became the story of America, you know. Okay. But we definitely didn't say, you know, this would be a good time to write a book about Marilyn because I actually found the film footage in like 2004, 2005. Oh, wow. So I've just had this sitting on this stuff for all these years. This was just, our process Mm. the article a few years of rest and then a few years of writing the book so it just happened that other Marilyn stuff was going on okay it started making me nervous when all the other Marilyn stuff was starting to crop up because I was like wait a minute you know (laughs) steal our thunder you know it's like we're writing about Marilyn Uh uh-oh you know everybody else is writing about Marilyn right now as a podcast that puts out a daily podcast, I'm glad people were interested in topics. It makes my life so much easier. And so as I'm Absolutely. researching topics and guests and stuff, you can kind of see a trend of certain types of books being published. And I just happened to notice that there was a lot of Maryland books, a lot, um, but you know, there's yeah, a, coming a, back. A, yeah. a decent amount in the past few months. And I've noticed, um, I just noticed that trend. So let's go back to um, escaping Nazi Germany. Uh, we actually recently had on a World War II veteran who fought at Bastogne um, a few months ago. One of the few kind of of that era that's still alive to tell about it you i think you said your grandfather and so that's really kind of where my grandfather fought in world war ii he's since passed on but we're kind of at that age to where there's a handful that live through it there's obviously a decent amount of parents um but the grandkids and great-grandkids are kind of the ones that are telling the story about it so um what's kind of your connection with your grandfather were you able to have a lot of time with him or was it more kind of distant because he passed on when you were younger Oh, no, no. He lived till be 93. Okay. So, um, Great. 
got to until my 40s I got to be with him I knew both my grandparents really well again until my 40s and spent a lot of time with them I lived in the city they lived in the city um but the thing about what you're talking about the grandchildren my so my mom was born in Berlin and then right. came over with my grandparents that generation who lived through that trauma didn't talk about it they mm -hmm. didn't dwell on it in fact it was best to bury it so it really is the grandchildren who don't have that emotional connection and can talk about it more objectively and see it cl more clearly without the baggage of having relatives who were murdered and you just had to go on like that. Um, so it, it what I think it makes sense that grandchildren are picking up the mantle, especially regarding the Holocaust, because as I said, nobody wanted to talk about it back then. Mm. It took a long time, even the the you see most of the Shoah tapes and the survivor videotapes are very old people. People didn't mm. do it when they were, you know, younger. Yeah. Um, but then it came time and they realized, you know what? I have to tell my story. We have to teach the next generation what went wrong, what went down, and how to avoid it. Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that's been going on with anti-Semitism again on the rise, um, some of the older people who've lived through the Holocaust feel it's necessary to tell their story. I teach part time. And uh, one of the classes I teach, I take the kids to interview. These are high school students. I take them to interview Holocaust survivors. And some of these Holocaust survivors have been telling their story for years, but some of them have just started anew. And, you know, they didn't want to talk about it. Like Bonnie said, it was too painful for them, but they realized they have to talk about it. It's got to be out there. It's got to be out in the world because a lot of young people don't even know the story. They don't, I'm in shock when I teach these kids and they know, all they know is Anne Frank, you know, they don't know what happened in World War II. They don't know the concentration camp situation. I, I was even shocked, the stuff I found out, like I thought I knew. And they, they know Anne Frank and they know 6 million. Those mm -hmm. are the two things they know. But to me, the characters in our book, my family, and get to know individual people and their struggles really changes the way you see the Holocaust. No, absolutely. There's um, my favorite show is Band of Brothers, and I watch it every year. And <laughs> what I tell people is, if you if you never watched it, you got to watch it like ten years to really start to understand. This is probably my fifteenth time through it, maybe. And I, I, I'm actually starting to understand some of how those guys might have thought about some of the things that they dealt with. Obviously I have no clue. I wasn't there, but, but I'm starting like now you're like, Oh, okay. I, I wasn't at best Stone. I wasn't shelled, but, but kind of understanding how they worked at it. And so books like this, narratives like this, kind of the more you kind of read, you can not go back in time, but begin to kind of taste it or smell it, if you will, what was really happening. And it does take a lot. It's not a one, one off book. It takes a lot of, yeah. reading and thinking and, and discussions and part of the problem that that generation had was we say they didn't talk about it a lot and there, there's definitely that mentality but also there wasn't podcast there wasn't the ability to self-publish a book or get on youtube or you know or, so it's kind of hard to figure out how go ahead i i even think it went like at family dinners at seder mm. or at thanksgiving it wasn't talked about so i'm not even saying to the public Amongst ourselves, it wasn't discussed. No, no, I'm with you. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, so you have the, the the familial conversations, and then you have the external. I'm wondering how much so does that that's actually linked by seeing other people talk about it. People go, "Oh, okay, I, I can talk about it with my family," whereas they didn't even have that option back then. And so everyone just kind of assumed we don't talk about it. We kind of we kind of go on. Um, Absolutely. 
and, and so it, it, you even see this through um, the Vietnam era as well, that a lot of those veterans um, didn't talk about stuff. But the, the, the newer veterans seem to talk more about it. So maybe that is a, a trend that's changing. Well, I think also acknowledging PTSD went a long way towards the the, the soldiers serving today understand that's a threat, a risk, and they're not ashamed to say, thank God, I have, I am suffering from PTSD and they move on. So that's how we've progressed, I think. Mm-hmm. And so how, how does your grandfather, and your mother get sponsored by the Superman? Not Superman himself, but Superman. <laughs> how does that happen? The guy who was the publisher of Superman actually wore a Superman t-shirt under his shirt so that at the appropriate moment, he could rip it open. <laughs> um, but um, my cousins of mine that my grandparents didn't know, they were first cousins of my grandfather, happened to live in the Bronx in the early 30s next to Harry Donenfeld. So at that time, he was a publisher, but not of comics. Comics weren't really common yet. He published girly magazines and things like that. And so they became friends and they remained friends. Harry moved to Manhattan they stayed in the Bronx but then when it was when um Faye is her name Faye Sternberg was looking for a sponsor for my grandfather she asked Terry if he would do it and miraculously he said yes and by the and he actually signed for my grandfather the same week as the very first issue of Action Comics Superman came out it was April 1938 wow it's it's weird how large and small the world is all at one time Totally. Yeah. That's what we discovered doing this book. I mean, you know, we kept coming across these crazy little coincidences like that. It's like, oh my God, Bonnie, this is the week that, because <laughs> the Action Comics has a June date on it, but mm-hmm. it actually went on newsstands in April, you know, which we didn't realize until we started researching. I was like, wow, that's when he was in New York looking for the sponsor, April 38, you know, so it's kind oh, of crazy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so, what, what, what is the shock, the change? maybe relief leaving Nazi Germany coming to New York that your family felt? Oh, well, it was a mix of emotions because a lot of their relatives wouldn't leave. Right. They were all in Berlin, all suffering under the same harsh laws. Every week there was a new law forbidding Jews from doing something else like going to school or going to work Mm -hmm. or eating in a public place or, you know, just a million laws, but they felt they were wealthy they were prominent in the community and they felt like they would be safe, but of course they weren't. So it was a mixture of fear for their relatives and relief. I mean, my grandparents had a two-year-old and I think that was a lot of what drove them. Whereas the relatives who stayed were older and set in their ways. And just imagine at, you know, 50 or 60 years old going, I'm going to move to another country where I don't speak the language. I know nobody I'll start over at Mm -hmm. that age and they just they couldn't even really consider it despite the risks that were seemingly obvious they just couldn't consider it but they're yeah and they were also entrenched in the community i mean they you know they had their businesses there flourishing businesses they fought in world war one you know who's gonna they're not gonna touch me i fought in world war one they're not gonna come after me you know that's the thinking and they did they came after everybody it's interesting because um this hasn't aired yet it will air by the time y'all does uh, we just had a podcast from uh, talking about 1917 to 1921 
in the U.S. And some of the black soldiers who came back from World War One, they had this notion that they were going to get certain rights and how they had to fight for that, and it didn't work out. It's very, it's it's interesting to hear that same thing um, on the German side. Obviously, I haven't thought about the fact that there was that there were been Jewish people who fought World War One and felt the same way. I've never, I've never thought. I, mean, about I didn't that. either. That, that's that's, the, that's me. Yeah, makes perfect than that because hitler actually copied american jim crow laws mm-hmm. that was his that was his you know ah you know what we could do we could just keep them out of society by not letting them do certain things and and really it was based on how americans treated african americans yeah which was i didn't know about that either that was a shocker when we found that out that the nazis had used america as a standard of how to function it's <laughs> like oh my god you know <laughs> yeah when when they arrive obviously they can't speak the language but there are probably other people who speak german and english were people receptive to hearing um was that part of what you guys looked into what was being said about what's happening in germany or did they kind of stick themselves because you know you, you go back to this era there is no twitter there's no facebook there's no podcast and so um, trying to understand what was being able to be communicated to the, just the guy on the street. What, 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 were they having those conversations about how bad it was back in Germany? I think Jews knew, right? I mean, fellow Jews knew what was going on back there. It wasn't a big secret, you know, um, but it wasn't really being written about much. It, nobody was really doing anything about it. People just knew that Jews were disappearing, that whole families would be gone one day, there one day, gone the next. But they didn't know. Nobody really knew about the camp system until a little later than after a few years after my grandparents got here but they did move to yorkville they lived right next to the 92nd street y so they were in german town if you will like Mm -hmm. where where germans settled so there were other german-speaking people there but i was you know we were talking about this the other day as late as 1939 there were um anti-jewish rallies in new york they had a, a parade right down the street in that neighborhood in 1939 and they had a big rally at Madison Square Garden a bund rally they call it right um so you know anti-semitism was big in America too you know it wasn't like you came here and it was like oh oh yeah we've arrived everything's okay you know it's still right. a bit of a problem so and continues to be so I don't know if either of you guys heard Rachel Maddow's podcast Ultra but it was about the anti-semitism in our government at that time and it's insane. Mm. They were working with Germany and Germany's government during the war. Yeah, it is interesting when you go back and you you look at um, history. This is why I'm, I'm always a fan of more history books because it's it's really hard to take a subject, even even the subject that you guys have written about. Someone could probably write four or five more books to fill in color and you know and, and patch in holes, and so you need. You need more history books to examine stuff, to push in on stuff. And so it's, it's so hard to fully understand a lot about history or just a little bit about history because there's so much and so many different uh, angles and perspectives that, that shape things. It's hard to keep for one person, at least, to, to keep track of it all. Absolutely. One of the books that was the most interesting, just to give background on this, was a book called Hitler's Willing Executioners, which was about just the citizens of Germany and how they participated which was something that hadn't even really occurred to me before I read that book. And that's all the book is about the choices people actually did have. Um, so that's, that's fascinating. But ironically, there was a man in my grandfather's building who was a member of the Gestapo 
who warned my grandfather about Kristallnacht. So there were Hitler's willing executioners. And then there were also Germans who, if they knew a Jewish person, felt human towards them. Right. <laughs> and actually saved their lives. Well, and that that's, you know, the, the, the part of the problem with war in general, I mean, obviously there's, there's the, 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 you know, the death and all that stuff, the destruction that goes along with it, but, but the propaganda that comes from war and the dehumanizing aspect of, hey, we have to go kill these, this group of people. Therefore, everyone, you, know, you think about those people who stayed behind in Germany, right? Well, from an American perspective, if you're going to fight the Germans, they're in Germany. Therefore, they are bad. It's hard to separate. Oh, well, they're, they're Jewish Germans. So therefore, they're being treated like, you know, and it, it becomes very hard because we had to flatten it out to make mm-hmm. these arguments against groups or peoples or countries or whatever it is. And it, it's very dehumanizing and it has a very long lasting effect that's hard to unwind. Yeah, we talk about that in the book. You know, they're b- dropping bombs on Germany, but Bonnie's family that was left behind are no fan of the Nazis, right? right. And they're getting bombed too at the same time. And I never even thought of that before. That never even occurred to me. You know, these people are behind enemy lines. They don't want to be there. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting tension when the, when the you know, the, the Allied forces invade. How do you know who's on which side? <laughs> you know, exactly. It, it, Most of the reports, though, they heard, you know, they could hear the Russians and the Americans and the British coming and were relieved despite the fact that it might meant they die mm-hmm. they were just relieved that it meant the end of the war mm-hmm. now you mentioned coming to the u.s they got the sponsor um that they did leave behind um you know their life in germany they didn't speak the language but there is this at least impression during the war, did World War II that the economy did kind of take off with manufacturing jobs and whatnot. Were they able to adapt pretty quickly over here or was it pretty a long road to, to get acclimated with the with New York? No, they adapted immediately. My grandfather was a furrier, so he they had a store in their apartment and he just immediately, and the world of furriers in New York was mostly Jewish. So he was able to make friends and a cousin, his um, sister was here with her husband, and they also were furriers. So I'm sure he got a lot of introductions and opened his first store as quickly as possible. Yeah, he was only 25 when he came. You know, he was very young. Right? And this might be a question that's not right, not, 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 not relevant. But did, so they spoke German. Did they also speak Hebrew as well? So could they communicate with um, non-German Jews because they, they could speak that language as well? They Yiddish. spoke Yiddish. Yeah, they spoke Yiddish. Yiddish. Okay, Yiddish. Okay. Um, but but there were a lot of Germans here. I mean, there really were. There was a big community um, on the Upper East Side. Okay. So finding other Germans, maybe not Jewish Germans, but other Germans was easy. Okay. Okay. So, and then did they, was there, did they learn English as well? Was that part of the process? Yes, absolutely. They yeah, learned right it. away. <laughs> the, the, you, know, was, you know, the old joke about you, you know, you, uh, Americans is, you know, we, we, we know one language and everyone else is like three or four. So I'm sure them learning English was probably a little bit easier than us going over there learning Yiddish or German or whatever it might be. My mom was in nursery school and so she would teach them. Mm. <laughs> mm. The learning. opposite. The opposite, exactly. huh? <laughs> How good was her German? Oh, she lost it after a while. <laughs> but it was my, you know, my grandparents spoke in German to each other still mm. all, their whole lives. Mm. Yeah, that was my next question, actually. Did they, for a period at least, try to tone down or work on the German accent because of how that might be perceived amongst people in the streets? 
I don't think so. I, they really didn't have a choice. I mean, their accent was their accent. Too, yeah, it's just too, too, too thick to fix. <laughs> um, but, you know, they were also very involved with their temple and the Jewish community. So they, there were allies built in. There really were. Yeah, sure. Okay, so they get the sponsor. They, they, get, they come to work here. Um, what were some of the biggest changes? Just obviously they had more, I guess, more rights theoretically than what they had in Germany. Uh, they weren't being targeted like they were at least on some level um but what, what were some of the other differences that you found between where they escaped and where they came to oh i mean they had to invent a whole new life they were free they didn't have to worry about being murdered that's the big thing so they spent the first four or five years just worried about their family who was still overseas mm. And the yeah. letters they're, back and forth. They were trying to get them to come over. You know, they were trying to get them over here before this. Once the war started in '41, you couldn't get anybody over here from Germany. It right. was over. You know, but before that, they were trying to bring them over. And Jules was going to great lengths to get them over here. Bonnie knows a little. We didn't go into too much detail about that, but Bonnie found some stuff about that. He he paid some guy who said he could. You know, tens of thousands of dollars. You know, there are lots of scams of we can get your relatives over here. And he did that. He did it through every service, every organization, and couldn't. Um, but hit, my um, grandmother's younger sister survived. She hid out in Berlin for the whole war, and then came and then came to America after the war ended. Wow! But she didn't look Jewish. She had red hair and freckles, and so she kind of just hid underground. They were called submarines. The people who lived underground in Berlin at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what she did. Sounds yeah. like another book's coming. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's more material. Uh, Jewel also had a sister who stayed behind. He tried to get her to come, but she wouldn't come. And she wound up going through four, four concentration camps. Oh, my gracious. And But lived. She survived. And she came over when the war ended. But she was a mess, you know. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. So they get the sponsor. They're over here. You mentioned earlier. Um, that they are, they have the film footage of Marilyn Monroe, but you say he's a courier, so was, oh, I went clear. Is he taking the footage, or did he just come in possession of the Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe footage? No, no. He where he lived, they shot the seven year itch around the corner from his apartment. Mm-hmm. So there was one day where they were shooting outside for the exterior scenes, mm-hmm. and he went with his movie camera and filmed it. And okay. a gaffer working on this on the set that day said to him, "Oh, tomorrow night's really the special one. You got to go there." So he went out at midnight the following night and and stood behind the director and the cameraman and filmed it himself. Wow. And and that's back in the day where you you didn't know what the film turned out until later on. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) And he didn't get nothing. (laughs) It could have been that he forgot to take his lens cap off. Yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> and so at this time in Marilyn's career, because I'm not a, uh, an expert on this, was it something that he realized how famous she was? Was she at her peak fame or was she on the rise up or where was she at in her fame at this time? This was right before her absolute peak. The seven year itch, that shot, it was called the shot scene around the world. That was her peak. So it pushed this- her over the edge. <laughs> she, was, she was up to it and that, that did it for her. That that picture was everywhere, you know, of her with the skirt blowing up. Okay. So that, oh, 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 so that, okay. I'm familiar with that picture. That is from that. I didn't realize I mean, that. A oh, lot of people okay. took that photo. He's He took foot, footage, but a lot of people shot that photo. They invited photographers from all over the world to come, news photographers to come to that moment. And that's why they invited them. So it would mm. be a big deal. 
And mm. there were thousands of people there watching the fil filming. They couldn't mm. even use the footage because it was so noisy because everybody was yelling and stuff. It was really a publicity stunt. And mm. so those pictures went out on the news wires. And the next day, it was this famous photo and still is a famous image, right, of her skirt blowing up. But the footage from that night was never used because it was too noisy. And so it was, quote unquote, lost. Also, Joe DiMaggio was there that night. He was mm. married to Marilyn Monroe and he was angry because her skirt was blowing up so high and everybody was catcalling and it was a horrible night for him. And he wound up having a fight with her that night and beat her up and then they got divorced. So it was a little sticky issue. So they lost that footage, you know, quote unquote, Billy mm. Wilder lost it. And so um, Jules's footage is the only surviving footage from that night. I mean, it, wow. it's it's kind of incredible So because they refilmed it. They reshot it in Hollywood. And and that night was this huge turning point for Marilyn because it was this moment that defined her for the rest of her life. And it was the end of her marriage. I mean, a, a lot happened that night. <laughs> yeah, it was a big night. How close was he? Four feet. Wow. Oh, because I've seen... No, um, it's, it's insane. It's insane footage. I mean, it's reenactments of it. There's a lot of people there, like you say, and at least in the reenactments. And so he was, he's like front row, basically. He's front row, right behind the camera. Wow. 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 It's beautiful footage. You can see some of it online. We, for the story for the Times, they ran some of the footage. You can look at it. And could you, did you make some steals from that photo? For that yeah, photo? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're in the book. They're yeah. in the book. Yeah. So what did he do with the film for all that time? I mean, for the next few years, he would show it to relatives. He liked screening home movies for relatives. Mm -hmm. Everyone would come over and they'd put up the projectors and screen. Mm -hmm. um, but then after my grandmother had her stroke, the projectors basically went away. And I was young at that time, so I just had never seen it. I'd heard about it, but I'd mm -hmm. never seen it. it. You have to wonder how many films like that are out there in the world <laughs> because it's not, yeah. you know, people just don't, you can't publish it. So grandpa has a film with something crazy that he's never showed anybody or forgot about or didn't realize he even called. It was mixed in with like hundreds of other family movies too. It was like, you know, you're shooting stuff all the time. So there's a Shriners parade in there. <laughs> Bar mitzvahs and weddings and, you know, oh, there's Marilyn, you know. Oh my gracious. There's Marilyn. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the I family... mean, when Bonnie saw it, she knew like right away. You know, they were going through the footage, the film that they had found in his in his house in his apartment, and she could see the dress, you know, and the, the mm -hmm. hair. I was like, "Oh my God, look, it's real!" Blonde hair and the white dress and the black background. What else, it wasn't what else could it be? <laughs> right? Did did he get Joe in the, any, any of those shots? No, Joe's not in it. But Tom Yule is, Billy Wilder is, and the cinematographer is. Wow. But there's also there's a moment though when we think Joe DiMaggio is walking off the set because Marilyn looks to the side and looks really upset. <laughs> so we think that's the moment that Joe said, "I'm going, I'm going to the hotel, or I'm going to get a drink. I'm out of here." <laughs> wow. So he he takes the film and then he just holds it and shows it occasionally. That's so that that also is that era though, where which is is kind of that not you have it. You might show your friends, might occasionally talk about it, but it's just not. You know, today it's Facebook update or Twitter update or Social TikTok media. or whatever. Yeah. You got it. You're tagging everybody. You know, it's it's so it's just so different to think about someone having that. And then if I didn't realize that they they reshot that scene, so he actually has some of the original, which is really rare. You might have sold it after her death and all of that. It's just a completely different mindset. 
Yes, completely different mindset. And and for me too, when I found it, I wasn't a particularly big Marilyn fan. Now I am, but then I wasn't. And so I thought, oh, cool, we have this Marilyn footage. And, and I did exactly the same thing he did. We had a film festival with some friends upstate. We screened it once and we were like, the end. <laughs> Nothing else. You met me. <laughs> and then it wasn't until really Trump was elected and... I got more politically involved than I had been before that I brought it out again. Mm. And so when you first heard Bonnie's story, you say it was a mutual friend, but I'm sure there's a little bit of going, yeah, I'm not too sure about all of this. It can't all be true. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I, well, I'm always open to hear somebody's story, you know, and this was a pretty <laughs> reliable source. And she's like, you should meet Bonnie. But I think we spoke on the phone first. And um, then when we met and she showed me the footage, you know, I was like, oh, you know, this isn't like you said, like a guy like three blocks away and you can see mm-hmm. Marilyn in the distance. Right. But the thing that that really enamored me to her story was her grandfather's story and that escape from Nazi Germany, because, you know, he not only came and got the sponsor, he had to go back to get his wife and daughter and they weren't going to let him back in the country because he was a Jew and he had to talk his way back in. And I mean, going back to Nazi Germany in 1938 when you're a Jew is completely insane. Mm-hmm. Everybody was going in the other direction. They said, we don't want you here. What are you doing back here? <laughs> the bravery. And, you know, he's a superhero. You know, that's what we talk right. about. He goes back into the country. No cape, you know, no no bulletproof shield or whatever goes back in to get his family and leaves again, you know? Um, So that's the thing that got me. I mean, you know, the Maryland stuff is great. And like we said, that's kind of the hook to get people involved, but the real story is his bravery and um, his love for them, you know, and then coming back to America and settling, like we said, and his love for the community. I mean, he was that guy, he was the mayor of the block in New York city. What you have is a mayor of the block. And this is a guy who cares for everybody and takes care of everybody in the community. And he's always there in the middle of the night, you know, you, whatever you need some a prescription filled. You're an old person. That was Jules. He was there. And so he was just this amazing guy. And I think I kind of fell in love with him a little bit you know, through Bonnie. I mean, he wasn't alive anymore, but the more we found about him, the more I just loved him and I wanted to make him a real person and have people know him and know his story. So. How do you go about telling a story like this in in a responsible way, but also you want to do it in a way that's not just dry facts. You want people to read, to be engaged and to fall in love with the character. I was telling him, I know, I have four kids and my, my older two are uh, teenagers. So we talk a lot about movies or entertainment and just, you got to care about characters to keep watching a show, to keep watching, to be engaged. And that's the same thing of history as well. Um, You can go read dry facts of history. You won't read many of them. You have to be engaged with the character. So how do you strike that balance of trying to tell the story, trying to make sure people are engaged? Um, and obviously there is some sensationalism that's built into this because the stakes are so high. Um, how do you go about balancing all that? I think the way to go about with this and with all the books I've written actually is to tell a story of a person that people don't know. You know what I mean? You're not writing about Hitler. Hitler's in the background. You know, Um, you're not writing about FDR. He's back there, but it's not his story. It's a story of this person. Right. So you do as much research as you can on that person. Right. So you find all their letters. You find every photo that was ever taken of them or by them. You Mm -hmm. talk to everyone who ever knew them. (laughs) 
you know, and we did a lot of interviews, you know, and then you read about those times, right? So you're reading about Berlin in the thirties. I didn't know much about Berlin in the thirties, but now I know everything about Berlin in the thirties. So you can create that background using the research material that you find. So to, you know, paint that background that he's walking in, but all that information about him is sort of original material, right? So that's how you do it. It's sort of like you you research that subject who's your subject and then the rest of it is sort of background material but you're you're creating that background because you need that scene for the person to walk around in and breathe in and right. that's what makes it seem real and that's why people will relate to it and want to read it you know bonnie if your grandfather were to read this what would he think oh my gosh he would be over the moon he he wanted me to make a movie about him Mm. he knew he had an incredible story i mean he told it all the time so he knew it was incredible and he wanted me to make a movie and i worked at mtv networks and so as soon as he heard that he didn't know what mtv was but i think he knew the word network he was <laughs> like now you can make a movie now you can make the movie of my life and he wanted it to be called the signature we named a chapter the signature because to him Getting that sponsor was the ticket to everything else. Even though there were 12 more steps after he mm -hmm. got the sponsor, the getting of the sponsor was the absolute necessity. And that was the hard thing to do because most people didn't know someone in America. So, um, so yeah, he thought it was a fantastic story. He would have loved to have a book written about him or a movie made about him. He, he knew he was special. What was the most surprising thing that you guys come across researching this book? Well, I, I have one that I always say, which is, well, there are two pieces to the same thing. One is that um, the only concentration camp that tattooed its prisoners was Auschwitz. None of the other camps did. I didn't know this, and I had read a lot and seen a lot, but I had no idea. And it was because four prisoners had stolen four Nazi dress uniforms, gotten in a car, and drove out of the camp. And when that happened, they realized, well, we have to do something so we can identify people so they can't do this again. And that's when they started tattooing. And it only happened at that camp. Did not realize that. And the other the other just crazy fact was so my my grandparents and my mom left the night before Kristallnacht. After Kristallnacht, the Jews had to pay to clean up what the Nazis had done. Mm -hmm. And they oh. also had to pay for the Jewish stars that they were forced to wear. I mean, just just think about that. Everything, yeah. yeah just little things like that were kind of crazy. And my biggest thing was, you know, I, we were trying to find the connection. Well, I was trying to find a connection between Marilyn and um, Harry Donenfeld, the Superman guy, because we had the connection between Marilyn and Jules, right? And then we had the connection between Harry and Jules, but there was no connection between Marilyn and Harry. So yeah. I didn't know if there was one, but I wanted to tie everything together. Right. And so we're researching, 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 we're reading all these books. And one of the books about Marilyn that I read at the very last page, like very last page, not like <laughs> in the middle of the, where the pictures are, but the very, very last page after the acknowledgements and index and everything there's, and I could have very easily missed it and not seen it was a picture of her standing, a candid photo of her covered in the covers of the magazines that she had posed for that year this was 1946 so before she became a movie star before she was even in film she was a model 
uh, for magazines. And so she was on the cover of something like 33 magazines that year in 1946. So she's covered in these magazines and apparently nothing else, right? But she's probably got a bathing suit on. And when I look at these magazines, I see that they're Harry's magazines. Oh, wow. It's like, oh my God. Like I almost passed (laughs) out. Like I was like, this is the missing link. You know what I mean? I called Bonnie immediately and uh, she, and the photo's now in the book. (laughs) Wow. But that was the, you know, so that was her way into the story. You know, it's not that Jules just stumbles upon her on the corner or whatever comes to the corner to shoot her. You know, as early as 1946, she's in on this narrative, right? So halfway through the book, we've got act two and we've got Marilyn posing for Harry's magazines. And here she comes. (laughs) How well did he know her? Because I could see it where not, not well or we have no idea we don't we don't assume we didn't make anything up we didn't assume they were friends or anything i I bet he did know her though i bet i I mean he was out in hollywood all the time you know i'm sure he came across her now and then he was all over the place he was one of those guys but um we just use it from the perspective of her posing for these magazines you know and talk about his magazines so it's just kind of a crazy world like you said it's it's everything's kind of connected what's the one question that you didn't get answered you'd like an answer to Oh, when in doing the research for the book, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who else, if anyone, Harry Donenfeld was a sponsor for? Mm. From from our book, we have Harry basically saved the lives of twenty one people. Are there more? I don't know. That's all the people we know about in my family from this one, you know, act. But, it, but those aren't public been, records, I'm guessing. There are no. They didn't save records of sponsors. Oh man. Yeah, they just use them and tossed them. You know, it wasn't something you had to keep. Once you were in, you were in, you know, so it's just not out there. You can't it's find it. It's always weird when you talk to authors about these books, some of the weird records that are kept. <laughs> and then something like this, you think, oh, they probably kept it because that way, you know, if you need to go verify later on, this guy was actually the sponsor, yeah. but they throw that away. So yeah, it was typical. You know. I mean, we, we talk to people who study this normally. You know, this was our first time out, but um, mm-hmm. we spoke to people who study that and they're like, no, they generally didn't keep those forms. They're just not around. And we tried to find them, but we want to put the call out. If anybody <laughs> knows that their their family is sponsored by Harry Donovan, let us know, you know, uh, we'd like to know. And you, a, a lot of times, you know, people who did sponsor Jews at the time um, did sponsor more than one. You know, if you had the money, like Harry sure. did, you would, you would bring a lot of people over because, you know, thousands and thousands of people were trying to get out like margaret sanger i don't know if you know margaret sanger she she sponsored a bunch of people mm-hmm. and he was friends with margaret sanger harry was friends with her so my i i bet that he did sponsor other people but we just don't know okay all right we're gonna link to the book in the show notes um website social media anything else you want us to send people to i think that's it what do you think the book is most important get the book buy it read it there love it <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed it. Thank, thank you. So Thanks for having us. Great interview. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad free. Thank you so much.